Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 275. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're honored to have with us the internationally recognized animation authority and famed author of Made of Pen and Ink, Flesher Studios in New York years, G. Michael Dobbs. Thanks very much, Barney. I appreciate uh, being international. <laughs> see, it's true, though, right? Yeah. See? Uh, yeah, a lot of people. Well, that's what my publishers are telling me. The book is being sold around the world. So right. that's I'll accept international gladly. <laughs> <laughs> and so before we went live, before we went on the air, we were talking about that. This is this book has been basically just a a passion project for you since 1975. You've been working on this book, correct? Yeah, I, I, I went to the University of Massachusetts and um since junior high school, I've been a movie nut, and I used to go to um, uh, a little independent art house theater in Northampton, Massachusetts, and they had a compilation uh, of Betty Boop cartoons. Mm. And I was familiar with the Betty Boop cartoons. Uh, growing up, my absolute favorite cartoons were the Fleischer Popeyes. And, you know, when you're young, uh, you're full of you know, enthusiasm and hope and stupidity. And I was enthusiastic and hopeful enough that I could write something about the Fleischers, stupid enough to take on a task uh, like that. But I was very fortunate. I, I was able to contact Richard Fleischer, uh, who was Max's son, uh, a very famous film director. Um, Perhaps people in your audience will remember 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which he directed for the Disney company. Uh, he, he did a lot of films. And, and after a back and forth exchange of letters, Richard gave me his blessing, which also meant that his sister Ruth, uh, Max's daughter, gave me her blessing. Okay. And, and once, once they did that, um, Folks who worked at the studio were willing to sit down and speak with me. So, you know, uh, over the years, I've been criticized, like, why haven't you gotten your book out yet? And and what the heck are you doing? And, and honestly, when I was working on this in the 70s and 80s, publishers were not interested. Mm. And there was really no such thing as self-publishing. You could go to a vanity press, but then you'd wind up with a garage full of books and no way of distributing them. Right. I'm very fortunate that this project has taken the time that it has because now there are resources on the internet that were never available to me back in the day. So I can go onto sites that have digitized searchable um, libraries of motion picture trade publications. I can go to YouTube where I can find that some crazy collector has uploaded uh, 16 millimeter television prints of Fleischer cartoons that have never been on DVD or never been on VHS even. So I'd like to view this project as being the best of both worlds. It's, it's, I was able to talk to so many people who worked at the Fleischer studios um, and then waiting as I did, now I'm able to access materials that I could never access before. You know, I'm just a, a working class journalist in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I used to go to New York City um, 
to the uh, Library of Performing Arts um, to go through their files. I used to go through microfilm. Boy, that was a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, uh, I used I went to the Library of Congress uh, in order to see uh, Fleischer cartoons I could see nowhere else. Uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is is that uh, the internet really made this possible, and the self-publishing revolution really made this possible as well. So um, it's it's been you know it's my uh, that's my fifth book. I've written other books, uh, owned a magazine about animation. I've done other things, um, but. Uh, and I just retired from 22 years as the executive editor for uh, the what is now the largest print media outlet in our part of the state. So um, I'm glad it's out. I'm working on the second volume. It will be done, I would say, by the end of the summer, uh, making some pretty good progress. And um, and then when it's out, then I can die. You know, what do I have left to do? I mean, you know, I can just sort of. No, I'm just teasing. I already have other books lined up. So, <laughs> but so you you do bring up a, a a couple points that I wanted to touch on. One that you said you're making a volume two. Have you always thought about making two volumes, or the fact is like with the advent of the internet, and also being able to do with the advent of self publishing that you've been able to decide to say, I actually found more stuff that I can put on this. Well, the the real reason, and it's it's terribly prosaic i'm afraid to breaking it up into two stories is price point hmm. um you know i I've, I've sold my books at various authors fairs uh some of them lend themselves to going to a comic book show and what i've discovered is that even if you have a fantastic book price point can be something that can stand in the way of a purchase and honestly i was looking at a 50 dollars price tag wow and that doesn't fly. Um, right. I'd much rather break it into two, allow people to, to buy a first volume, buy the second volume. Um, and I, I know that's not a, a very sexy or creative kind of reasoning, but I, I just look at how much books cost these days. Um, and I want to make the book as accessible as I possibly can from that price point of view. So the reader gets a, a book at a, a fair price. I make a little bit of money on each uh, on each copy. Um, I have entertained the thought that um, my my the service that I use does provide a hardcover option, and I've thought that maybe down the road I would combine both volumes into one hardcover um, for any um, collector who's got a big wallet. So. But right. yeah, it's things like this that you you think of because this is my fifth book. I, I've I've gone through this, um, I've gone on this path before, and it's price point is a very important thing. Right, right. Now, for those that might be unfamiliar with Fleischer Studios, do you want to kind of give people a brief synopsis sure. on the importance of what of what Fleischer Studios did for the advent of animation? Well, you know, when when I was growing up in the in the six late fifties and into the early sixties, if you said the word animation, people would automatically think Disney. Mm -hmm. And and the bottom line was is that there were many people other than Walt Disney who a had animation studios and b produced cartoons that were very popular. Um, 
throughout the 1920s into the 1930s and then the early 1940s, the only real rival Walt Disney had in the marketplace was Max Fleischer. And Max was, Max was of a generation of cartoonists that preceded Walt Disney, frankly. Um, I mean, Max started his experiments in animation about 1917. Uh, and, and just to put this into pop culture means, if you've seen a Betty Boop cartoon, that's Max Fleischer. If you've seen a black and white Popeye cartoon, that's Max. If you see a commercial today and they've got follow the bouncing ball, that's Max Fleischer. If you've happened upon the incredible Superman cartoons he produced as the studio closed in 1941 and 42, uh, that's Max Fleischer. Um, Max invented the rotoscope. This was a means that he came up with to uh, speed up animation production. It's literally taking live action movie footage of a person doing something and then tracing a character over those live action images. It's still being done today. Take a look mm -hmm. at any, if, if you're like me and you sit through the credits of a, of a Marvel movie, there's going to be, a, there's going to be credits for rotoscoping. The, the process is still being used today. Um, Max's impact, his studio's impact on animation was really amazing. And the studio did things that nobody else was doing. Um, and they, they had a huge audience. Um, uh, it's, uh, in the silent days, it was the out of the inkle cartoons with Coco, the clown during the talkies, it was the, the follow the bouncing ball and then Betty Boop and then Popeye. And then Max also did two features, uh, Gulliver's Travels and, uh, Mr. Bug Goes to Town. And, uh, Gulliver's Travels is very familiar to a lot of people because it's in the public domain. So unfortunately they don't get a lot of bad prints have been floating around since the advent of VHS. Mr. Bug, which is available to see on YouTube, but unfortunately not on um, uh, home media, uh, like a DVD or Blu-ray, is a absolutely wonderful film. And in many ways is the culmination of the themes, the styles, the, the types of topics that you would find in Fleischer cartoons. So when when somebody purchases that made of pen and ink, that Fleischer Studio, so it's called the New York Years. Is that so? What can people expect in Volume One and uh, and expect to look forward to in Volume Two? Well, I decided to break this up into the geographic location of where the studio was. So Max okay. was Max and his family was were immigrants from Austria. They came to the United States when Max was a little kid. His father was a tailor. In fact, his tailor shop was where Radio City Music Hall now stands in New York City. Okay. Huh. Um, they lived in Brooklyn. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's very much an American immigrant story. And um, Max was a New Yorker. His brothers who joined him working at the studio were all New Yorkers. So their initial studios were in New York City. And then in, in 1938, the decision was made to build a studio in Miami, Florida, um, which was very radical. Um, right. And part of it was uh, Max and his wife 
had frequently vacationed in Florida. Part of it was Miami. Um, uh, the Miami government was very interested in trying to lure a motion picture studio to Florida, offering them all sorts of tax breaks if they built a studio there. Um, so I decided that it was it would be a legitimate break to break it into two volumes. Um, because some of the cartoon series that were started in New York were carried over to Florida, such as Popeye. But some of the series stopped, like Betty Boop, for instance, and the song cartoons. So from an um, artistic and, and stylistic uh, sense, there is a real departure, a real difference between these two locales and, and the cartoons that came out of those studios. What were some examples of, like, say, a New York, um, a New York animated feature as compared to like a Miami animated feature? Um, okay, I'll go. I'll use the song cartoons um, as okay. an example. So, uh, the song cartoons were the ones with "Follow the Bouncing Ball," and Max started this series um, in the 1920s. So basically, when a theater ran one of these songs, or one of these cartoons, they would be able to take sheet music for that popular song. And whether it was a pianist or an organist or a full orchestra, they would play that song live, and then people in the theater would sing along. Mm -hmm. Come the sound revolution, um, Max redubbed it to um, screen songs rather than song cartoons. And here he was sitting in New York City. His, par his distributor was Paramount, who owned famous music. I mean, New York City, with the exception of motion picture production, was the entertainment capital of this country. Radio came from New York City, the recording industry, Broadway, nightclub performers. It's, it's really pretty astonishing. And Max and his staff, his brother Lou was very much into music. His brother Dave was very much into music. They came up with this idea. Why don't we have a popular performer perform the song that is in the cartoon? So this is where you get the Mills Brothers, Cab Calloway, Ethel Merman, Lillian Roth, Arthur Tracy, Don, Don Redmond and his orchestra, Louis Armstrong and his and his orchestra, all appearing live as part of these cartoons. This is an example of, of a New York cartoon. They didn't do that in, in Miami. Um, taste and entertainment and animation had changed. Taste in the movie industry has changed. But that's a good example of what they were doing in New York. They were all New Yorkers. They were in this entertainment capital. And it's like... Mm. Oh, geez, Cab Calloway's got this hit song called Minnie the Moocher. Let's do a cartoon. Let's hire him to come into the studio. And we, we shoot him. And then we shoot him dancing. So now we can do him. We can rotoscope a character based on his well-known dance movements. So that's a good example of, of one of their New York produ productions. Okay. And, and so... So when, when you actually sat down and as you're working on your research, what what thing did you discover that actually surprised you as you're doing some of your research? Well, I think the very first thing that surprised me was nearly every Fleischer cartoon has the uh, credit line of directed by Dave Fleischer. Dave was the youngest of the Fleischer brothers. Uh, Dave was really into show business. Um, 
but he didn't direct the cartoons. So if if you look at if you look at uh, like Warner Brothers, for instance, and you look at Chuck Jones, and you look at a guy like Tex Avery and Bob Clampett and Robert McKimson and Frizz Freeling, these were all guys who were called directors, and they headed up a unit. They worked with a right with a group of writers. They would help design characters. They would approve the design of characters if done by somebody else. They would work with the animators about how this cartoon should look what they're expecting the characters to do. It's just like directing a live action motion picture in many ways. The director was the person who was basically ultimately in charge of that production. At Fleischer's, you had a completely different setup. So basically, usually on credits, they'll say Dave's name and then they'll have one or two animators. And those guys were the head animators and they were, and usually the guy whose name was first was the actual director actually doing that direction kind of work um dave was a gag man he would he would contribute gags uh, dave was into music um he liked he liked getting involved with with the score of the pictures he was also into directing the voices, so the voice actors. So uh, people like Jack Mercer, who did Popeye from 1934 into his death in 1984. People like Mae Questel, who was doing, she was the predominant voice for Betty Boop, and then she did Olive Oil. Um, uh, she was working at the studio till about 1938. Um, so he would work with directing them. But he was not a director in the sense of how we think of a director should be. Um, Myron Waldman, who was one of the head animators and indeed a director, uh, said that Dave would go by everyone's desk toward the end of the workday to flip their pages to see what they had animated. So they would have the, the sheets of paper. They, the animation drawings would be done in pencil. You'd get them in order and you literally flip them like a flip book. And so Dave would flip them. What did you do? And uh, this irritated Myron. Uh, so um, Dave came up to him. He grabbed the pile of papers and flipped them. And they were blank. So Dave says, well, what the heck have you been doing all day, Myron? He says, hey, that's tomorrow's work. Um, so, he, so Dave was doing those kinds of things. Um, but he was, and that was the first major thing I learned was, he was credited as a director, but that credit line bothered a whole group of people for many, <laughs> many years. So he wasn't really a director in that sense. I sort of view him as a, as a line producer. You know, mm. it's like in the motion picture, the, the guy in the producing staff who is there in the trenches making sure everything is done. Mm. Now, because you mentioned earlier that when people think about animation from like the 30s and 40s, they'll think of Disney. Was there a relationship that Fleischer had with Disney or did they have any interactions with each other or anything? Um, Disney paid attention to, to Fleischer and Fleischer paid attention to Disney. Um, in the 1920s, Max's Out of the Inkwell cartoons were extremely popular. And I suggest to anyone listening or watching this this podcast to to go on YouTube and just Google Coco the Clown out of the Inkwell cartoons because they're extremely inventive shorts. And basically, the premise was 
Max would film himself as the creator of Coco. He'd draw Coco on the drawing board. That would be animated. And then he and Coco would interact. And they had uh, the worst father and son relationship one could possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, it's more like Frankenstein and his creation. That's what this really was. There are lots of pranks, a lot of stuff going on. Really inventive, very popular. Disney's first successful cartoon series was called Alice in Cartoonland. Yes. So, so he filmed a live action little girl and then superimposed her into a cartoon land. He took the format of Al the Inkwell and flipped it. Mm. So they, they were very aware of one another. Disney poached animators from Fleischer. Okay. Um, and, and later on, Fleischer would poach animators from Disney. I mean, they went back and forth on that stuff. Um, there is a story that's going to be in the second book that I'm reluctant to tell right now because I, I have to do a little bit. I trust the source that gave it to me, but as an old school journalist, I like to double check things. Right. Um, and it is a story about Max and, and Walt. Um, I can tell you that officially they met in the 1950s, mid 50s when Max's son, Richard, was directing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for Walt Disney. Right. Yep. And, and uh, in fact, Richard uh, says in, one, in his memoir that he, he called his dad for permission. He says, you know, I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to direct this, which was then the, the largest budgeted uh, live-action film that Disney had, had produced to that point. Um, and uh, Max's response was, well, well, go ahead, of course. Charge him as much money as you can for your for the directing job, you know. So, um, and then Max came out while Richard was working on the lot. And he, there was a reunion with a number of people who had worked for Max who were now working for, for Walt. So, you know, uh, they were competitors. Um, and uh, some of the some of the verbiage between between the two of them were probably not very complimentary. They were definitely competitors, but they did two radically different kinds of animation. And they had radically different ideas about what to do with animation. Um, and so really I, yeah, they competed in the marketplace, but, but uh, really when you look at their work today, you can, you can see the differences and you can see why audiences liked both of them. Right. Now, uh, we mentioned before, as you said, that you you actually wrote some books before this as well. Yes, some of them almost that, as you mentioned in a previous interview that I that I saw on YouTube, that like you've kind of you know did some segues and kind of went on and did some other books while working on this. Yes, you know this you know forty five year passion project of the, doing this 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 book. One of them was called escape yep which is about the cartoon from the 90s you want to talk to us a little bit about that one sure um in 19 well in 1992 i bought uh, along with a business partner a magazine called animato hmm. and animato had been in in business for a while the guy who owned it uh, owed money at the printers um we made a deal with him we retired that printing debt and animato was a magazine designed for animation fans so from 1992 to 1997 um, we did it. And um, after uh, the business partnership was dissolved, um, what I did is I started another magazine um, 
but there were changes in the marketplace and I had to put it down after two issues. But I had all this material and I realized that it told a story about how people thought cartoons were for kids, especially when I was growing up. Right. And it had all changed and it had changed because of the Simpsons. It had changed also because there was uh, Nick cartoons and cartoon network and um, uh, Nickelodeon uh, was owned by Viacom, which also owned MTV. So Nickelodeon was commissioning um, these cartoon series that were creator driven. The creators of the cartoons were basically in charge of running these, these shows. Uh, they included like Doug and Rugrats, but there was one that people at MTV sort of coveted and they started running Ren and Stimpy, not just on Nickelodeon for kids, but on MTV. And it caught on with college kids because Ren and Stimpy was never really a good cartoon show for children. Right. <laughs> it really wasn't. It's it's a it's a fabulously funny show, but um, not one for kids. So was that what, Bashki? Was that a Bashki? No, that was that was John John Crick Falusi was the guy okay. behind that. Okay. Um, so what I did with a lot of these animato interviews I had done with these creators and with these voice actors and all these people is then put it together in a book that tells this story about how suddenly there was this boom in animation and it was for adults and it was also creator driven. Hmm. So, um, um, you know, so yeah, you mentioned Ralph Bakshi. There's uh, an interview in the book with, with Ralph. Um, uh, Ralph was, was uh, doing work for Cartoon Network. Um, and I had the, the pleasure and privilege of going to his New York studio where he had this entire cartoon he was producing on a wall, the story it was storyboarded, and he did exactly what animators do. He performed the entire cartoon for me. You know, he'd point, okay, so in this frame, the guy says this, and he and Ralph <laughs> did voices, he did sound effects, he did the entire seven-minute cartoon for me. Um, right. so so that book really tells this story about this transition. And you know, and then MTV started producing. Um, animated shows on its own. You know, they produced uh, like Liquid Television and Aeon Flux and, and shows like this, the Grunt Brothers. They, they, so they definitely went into this. So uh, the success of The Simpsons and then the success of putting Ren and Stimpy over to MTV spurred this incredible renaissance of creator driven animation. Um, and would you consider now like animation not a genre but a medium now because of that? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think the problem is that Hollywood wants to put everything in boxes. They want to classify mm -hmm. everything. So with with animation, they're more they're still more entrenched with the idea that this is something for kids. Mm -hmm. um, Slowly but surely, I think they've been recognizing that, yes, this is something that a filmmaker could use for adult purposes to tell an adult story. And also, I mean, the, the new Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse has just been released. You know, 
it's 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 earning a lot of money and that lot of money isn't just coming from kids and it's just not coming from spider-man fans it's coming from the general public you know um what comic book movies has taught Hollywood is a good story is a good story is a good story. And mm. it's going to attract an audience that may not have spent um, their, you know, their youth reading comic books to recognize this. And they may not have spent their youth watching old, t uh, watching old um, animation. So uh, I don't think we're quite at the level where, you know, you, you could have a director, although James Cameron basically has done this with the Avatar films. Right. I don't yeah. view Avatar as as a live action movie. The first Avatar movie, I really didn't view it as a live action movie. It was an animated movie with live action inserts of particular scenes. And the second Avatar movie is an animated film right. um, designed at a, a mixed a mixed market it's designed for adults and and older kids so you need more guys like john Car uh, james cameron saying hey i got this story i want to tell this in animation as opposed to live action to really cross that barrier that you you've described and you'd actually mentioned too that could also be the spiritual successor to the out of the inkwell cartoons where with avatar is because it kind of emerges live action and animation at the right. same time yeah absolutely absolutely and so if, if if max fleischer was if he was alive today what would he be thinking about the animation field right now oh god that's a good question <laughs> um i mean max um hmm. so uh max was still professionally active doing uh, doing things um in the 1950s and around 1960, a former uh, Fleischer Studios employee, a guy named Hal Seeger, successfully convinced Max to do a television version of Coco the Clown. Mm. Um, and uh, Myron Waldman uh, did was the was the director for it. Uh, Seeger produced it. Uh, Max had a financial. Um, um, agreement with it and and bless the project i know myron was really disappointed that they couldn't do the kind of animation that they had done previously because this was now limited animation and hannah barbera who had been at mgm and produced tom and jerry cartoons and were academy award winners realized that when theatrical animation was done they could go to tv but they had to radically change their style. They had to change the spot style to limited animation. And I, I know when they did the Cocos for TV, they could not do the full animation that had been done before. I think Max, at, Max who died in 1972, I mean, the last years of his life, if he saw any animation, it was either limited stuff on TV or it was Disney features. Um, and I don't know how he, he would have felt. I mean, I, I, I think he was, he would have probably been disappointed, um, mm. disappointed that too, that the, that the um, ability to do almost anything in animation, which is what he, he proved um, that era was over. Uh, you know, um, today people have a completely different attitude toward animation. Um, especially with the advent of CGI, you know, 
Uh, I, I don't know about you, but you know, I go to these movies and they're supposedly live action movies, and yet a good 70% of the film is being generated by animators on a computer. Right. Uh, it's so, you know, Max might have been really thrilled by that, to be perfectly frank. I think he, you know, he, he might have looked at that because Max was into technology. He, he, was, he was an IT kind of guy before IT was even thought of. Um, he, he, he was constantly tinkering with inventions, trying to come up with different ways to, to make animation better, to make it different. So he, he might have really embraced CGI for, it, what, for the potential that it has. Mm. And who who would you say now, like animators uh, of today, who would be considered like more like the spiritual successors of Fleischer right now? Well, you know, that's that's a really interesting question. Now, and I'll tell you why. In the 1950s, the floodgates uh, were open when it came to animation. Um, TV stations. All right, kids, let me tell you how it used to be back in the old days. Um, <laughs> every television station in America had time that they had a program and they decide, okay, we're going to buy old movies. We're going to buy old cartoons and Hey, let's hire some guy to be the host on a kiddie cartoon show. Every station in America had one of these, which meant guys like me, I was born in 1954 was raised on seeing the animation that was released when my mom was a kid. <laughs> so that means that there was a lot of guys in my boomer generation that grew up watching Max Fleischer cartoons, Warner Brothers cartoons, MGM cartoons. But what they didn't see was Disney because Disney mm. did not release his shorts to TV. Did wow. not want to, he didn't want to do that, wasn't interested in it. He created um, the Mickey Mouse Club, which was his TV show that, that he put on, which was extremely successful. But it was a live action show, pretty much. So you had a whole generation of people watching basically everything but Disney. Hmm. So, so when you talk to to people today, um, they're going to reference Betty Boop and Popeye. They're going to reference the Superman cartoons, which were hugely influential. They're going to talk about these things because that's what they saw as kids. And that's what influenced them. Um, you know, like uh, Paul Dini, when he created the, the first uh, animated Batman series that came out in the 90s, which is a real high point, by the way, in television animation. He's very upfront about it. He said, I looked at the Fleischer Superman cartoons. I wanted that same kind of style that they had. I wanted that art deco kind of look. He was very specific about that. Um, well, geez, you know, if you turn on Netflix today, there's the Cuphead show. And the Cuphead yeah. show is a Max Fleischer cartoon. They do everything to reference Fleischer. Uh, then saying this is Fleischer. Um, it's I watch them and you know you can see the references you can see even character design so here's here's a here's a, a show that's on Netflix that's based on a video game and and it's all about Fleischer so it's it, there's a lot of people who saw these things were like blown away by them and they grew up and they got into the industry and it's like 
wow, these are where, you know, so right now, if you're, if you look at a lot of contemporary animation, you're going to see strains of Warner Brothers. You're going to see strains mm. of Fleischer. You're going to see Tex Avery and Bob Clampett type things. Right. Um, those are the guys who are influencing people rather than, ironically, Walt Disney. Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah. Wow. So, so Michael, if, if people want to learn more about your books, where would be the best place they could go to? Well, I'm, I'm in the process of putting up a website, but I'm on Facebook. So okay. uh, G, G Michael as one word, Dobbs, D-O-B-B-S. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to interact with people. I'm happy if they've got questions, just, you can, you can message me. Um, um, certainly, uh, later in the summer, I'm going to have the website up because I know that I've got to, you know, start doing all of this kind of marketing that I, that I have not been able to do up until retirement, um, <laughs> yeah, or semi-retirement. Um, so yeah, Facebook is a great place. Just find me there. Send me a message if you got a question. The book is available online at the usual places. I don't like to use the A word all that much, but it's also on Barnes and Noble. Um, it's on Amazon. That's the A word in case people are thinking I'm swearing on your podcast here. <laughs> um, but um, that's that's the best place, the easiest place right now to, to, to find the book. And Facebook is the easiest place to find me. Okay, perfect. So listen, Michael, you're gonna to have to come back on the show when you got volume two coming out. Now. I would be I would be thrilled to do that, Barney. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michael. I thank you for your time. I appreciate it. <laughs>